Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who uh, consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 142nd show, so we're very excited to have our guest on today, Dan Portnick, author of The Secret Online Door, and Dan is a best-selling author. Dan, Welcome. Hey, it's great to be here. Congratulations on 142 episodes. That is quite an endeavor. Well, I thank the audience for staying with me all this time and listening. And we have uh, we've had listeners from 65 countries. Wow! Uh, so it's much appreciated. So Dan, you and I were talking before we got on. So let's tell the audience a little bit about your background and especially sure. um, your musical background. Oh, want to go that far back, huh? Uh, well, you know, I she's out of school. I was a musician. Oh, uh, since I've been ten, I've been a musician. But uh, I played in, you know, bands for years, and we we were pretty successful. We had we had a good run there through the seventies and eighties. Um, and then you know, I kind of looked at uh, life and said, um, you know, where can I go? You know, where do I want to go? And I ended up getting into sales, and I worked in um, the health club industry and at the time. I was uh, trained by some different people. Um, Tom Hopkins was a, a big mentor of mine in that era. Um, since then, I had the opportunity to get into um, some different businesses and become a partner in a uh, advertising agency back in the 90s, 80s, 80s, I want to say. Um, and then from there, I took it over and owned agencies ever since. <laughs> so, and my current one is BBS Film Productions. We uh, do all kind of video production and video content marketing for companies. And we opened up another division for podcast editing this year called uh, Premier Podcast Productions. So that's uh, kind of the scale of what I've done over over time. Uh, oh, yes. Also, I am an author. Um, I had an opportunity to write a book with Tom Hopkins and those who don't know him, he was uh, pretty big in the 70s and 80s. He's kind of a staple in the sales world. So it was a nice, a real honor and a privilege to work with him. And that got me into the author world for uh, for the past five years. Yeah, I remember Tom Hopkins. And that tells you how old we are when we can say <laughs> Tom Hopkins name. And That's some right. people who are watching this probably uh, are very well. And he was um, one of the biggest names back then in the 70s and 80s. Um, right. What do? You, why did you write this book? Well, this book I wrote because um, it 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 really I wanted to help people navigate through negotiating because really there are so many opportunities in negotiating that allow people to get extra things or more than um, than the average person could get. Um, you know, in addition, you know, if you have problems or have you know with service or anything you know, with the right negotiating, you can get to the right people that can give you what you want. And and that's often missed and misunderstood when doing any type of negotiating. So that's what this book's about. And I call it secret doors you can go through 
to reach almost anybody online to give you what you want or to make a situation correct. So that's, yeah, we that's have a lot of um, CEOs and uh, entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs that listen to the show. But before we get started about the book, what's it take to write a bestseller? Well, um, in my situation, I, I had a nice shortcut. Um, I have been using the techniques of Tom Hopkins in sales for almost 30 years. Um, he's got a very unique set of techniques that are timeless and they work every time in sales. So as of maybe seven or eight years ago, I noticed all his techniques were working online and we were closing sales without ever even talking to people. And these are B2B sales. So, you know, that, that was starting to raise some eyebrows in my industry and myself. So I said, you know what? I've got to get out and talk to this guy and, and tell him what what's happening. So I went through LinkedIn. I reached out to him and um, he got right back to me. I said, you know, hey, I'm using your techniques online and they're and they're working. And I think this would be a great opportunity for us to write a book together. And, uh, you know, I was just I, I had to be fearless. I said, you know what, let's do this. It's going to help a lot of people, you know. And uh, so he said, well, you know what? Um, you need to go to my assistant. She handles everything for us. Um, I appreciate the offer. Send all the information to her and she'll review it with our team and get back to you and let you know, you know, we're interested. So I would say maybe three weeks went by and I really didn't think anything of it. And then all of a sudden I get a call, a call back from her. Um, and she said, Hey, um, my name's Judy from the Tom Hopkins group. And we are uh, very interested in writing a book with you. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm an author now, <laughs> I guess, or we're going to try to be. So I was just kind of like flabbergasted. I'm like, wow, this is really great. What, what's next? She says, well, we have some auth we have some publishers that are interested in publishing, publishing this and, um, you know, anything to do with technology and sales, you know, we're in. So step one was a brain dump. I, she says, just write everything. So I wrote like maybe 20,000 words, just kept typing didn't have to make sense. I never wrote a book before. I just knew these are my experiences. They took it in and they and they ran with it. And it, it was really nice. Um, they helped put it in the order that it should be, whatever it took. And they just we just kept going back and forth, asking questions. It was about an eight or nine month process. Um, and and uh, when it came out, um, it became a bestseller within two months, which was really nice. Um, and that put me on the track of becoming an author and really getting to know Tom. Um, and since then, we actually wrote his life story. Well, actually filmed his life story documentary, which is out as well. Um, so it's been a it's been a really nice journey. So that's that's the process I took to become a bestselling author was uh, working with Tom. And that helped. You're right. That's a good shortcut. <laughs> it was a good shortcut because <laughs> he has a well-known brand. So, right. and that really, that really helped for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, how's the pandemic changed job hunting and interviewing? Cause you talk about this in the book. Yeah. You know what? It, everything's become online for the most part. I mean, um, you know, video has really played an important role in, um, in the interviewing process. Um, you know, via Zoom or whatever it might be, um, you know, uh, like we're doing now, you know, this is, I would say 90% of the the people I talk to is through Zoom meetings now, you know, I, that includes all my clients, you know, there's very few face-to-face -face meetings anymore. 
So making sure that your best foot's put forward online is is really critical nowadays. You know, for job interviews, do you still have to dress up uh, even with Zoom? Like, you know, what's the expectation? And like when you're interviewing people, what's your own expectation? Right. Well, for me, I haven't been on interviews for a while, but I do them with people. Right. And for for me, for the most part, it's um, it's a process. They there's there's a few steps they have to reach before we even communicate. Um and, and in my situation, I immediately go to someone's social media and look at what they are about and what they do and how they do it. Um, that is probably the quickest way for me to find out about somebody. And anybody that's watching that's looking for uh, a job and don't, doesn't think that social media is important, that's probably one of the first places anybody goes, especially if you make the short list. They're going to dig in real deep into your social media. Um, and I've got a story behind that. One time I was interviewing someone and she really, uh, you know, she came in, she was going to be an administrative assistant here and everything checked off all the boxes. We actually met in person at the time. And then I went online and we looked around and, you know, one of the guys in my office came in and said, hey, you know, might want to check this out. So we went on her Facebook page and she was sitting on a couch with four friends. This is her opening page. Okay. And I want to say she had a controlled substance in her hand, a pipe of some sort. Uh-huh. But, you know, all that time and effort kind of went out the window with that, you know, perception, you know, and it, it just put things on a different level. So the importance of that is is critical, especially on Facebook, because that's really where people go to, to look for things. So that's my process. I usually go through the social media end and then the next thing I would do is I would I would try them out as a consultant first. I wouldn't actually bring somebody on board. We would maybe try two week consulting period or maybe a month. And if they choose to want to do that, um, you know, we compensate them for it. And you know, it gives us an understanding without actually having to have that uh, commitment involved. And it really helps both sides because if they don't want to work for us and vice versa, there's not a lot of red tape and just saying, "Hey, you're a consultant. Let's let's step away from this." Yeah, I think that I I like to go that way myself. You write how practically all important people have gatekeepers. Uh, What's your advice for getting around them? Because I think that's like the biggest thing. I mean, one of the things I do is I write to CEOs through LinkedIn on weekends when there's nobody watching. And I found that to be very successful. What's your advice on this? You're exactly right when you say that. Um, Our situation, more than not, the gatekeeper is the second person we talk to. So if the techniques are done right that are outlined in my book and some of the negotiating uh, techniques, um, usually you can get directly to the person you want to get to. And they may not talk to you, but they will put their assistant or gatekeeper or handler, whatever they call, in contact with you. And then that becomes the first contact through for them. But um, there's actually four basic, five basic things you need to do to be able to reach these people at these levels. One is the online profile. I mean, it's got to look pristine and it has to look to the level of what that other person is expecting. In other words, like the person on the couch, you know, they could have been MBA quality. They could have had a doctorate, you know, in their field. It wouldn't have mattered because that initial presentation would have been, you know, 
not good. Um, you have to have the right message. You have to have something that's compelling to the customer, you know, that or the person that you're trying to you deal with. Um, and you have to know what you want out of any messaging or negotiation. So when someone says to you, hey, <clears throat> you know, this is great. What, what are you looking to do? You have to have a plan. So it gives them the least amount of effort to, to know what you want. Um, and you have to talk to make talk, make sure you're talking to the person that gives you that, that can give you what you want. I mean, that's, that's also important. A lot of times people talk to customer service people that are really in their nine to five. They're not there to help you, but there are two levels up maybe that have that lever or that switch that they can just switch to give you what exactly what you want. And last but not least, if you're dealing with like a real high up, like a, a celebrity and you want to reach them, you've got to overcome the fear of pressing the send button. <laughs> and that happened with me with Tom Hopkins. I got to the point where I'm like, this is a great idea. And then I have this little evil guy over here and this good one over here. Hey, it's a great idea. This evil guy's like, no, no, you can't, you can't do that. Who, who do you think you are talking to Tom Hopkins? So I finally went with the good one, hit the send button and, I, my life changes as an author with that button changing. So, button hit. Your whole life just changed, period. Yeah, that. it was good for the good. So, <clears throat> we have a question from the audience. The unemployment rate for uh, unemployment rate for neurodiverse community is more than eighty percent. Their biggest issue for employers to understand them and maintain their job in the current situation. Their situation is getting worse. Any suggestions for neurodiverse community in finding jobs? When you say, what was that, neurodiverse? Uh, neurodiverse. Oh, newer diverse communities. Yep. My job. Yeah, I mean, if you follow these techniques, I suggest you go to the person that is actually going to hire you or the person that's going to, no, better yet, the person that's going to make the decision. And you can do that through LinkedIn. I, I, I was hired twice in my life uh, and both times I did not put a resume in. I did not do um, anything the way I was supposed to do it with reaching out or putting it into the stacks of resumes with other people. What I did is I went online and I found the CEO of the company and I explained my situation to him. I made sure my profile looked good and I told him what I was looking for. And I was hired within an hour and I never even talked to the people that had much better credentials than I did because that solved the problem, you know, right away. And, and I find for me, that seems to be the way to get through almost anywhere. And it helps from that standpoint. Um, how do you get through, how do you get strangers to trust you? I mean, I think especially today when we're not meeting people in person and we're only seeing them through a screen, even though we can see them in person, people have now gotten so used to it that even conferences I've gone to, I went to a major conference for private equity that only a third of the people came. And one of the CEOs on the panel said that if they had not agreed to do this panel, they wouldn't have come either. Oh, that, really? <laughs> and they're running a five, uh, $500 million company out of their summer home. Yeah. And she said, I'm in jeans talking to my top people and even my biggest customers. I don't dress up, nothing. <laughs> and all the other people in the panel were saying the same thing, but it's really changed. So how do you get people to trust you uh, that don't know you? 
Yeah. And, you know, that happens every day in my business, especially in sales. You know, whenever I get hired by a customer, there's a process that they have to go through that I have to go through to be trusted by them, uh, especially at the higher levels. And I look at it as a series of hoops that you have to go through. Um, And it all starts with being on time. You know, I mean, that's probably one of the biggest issues with with people, especially millennials and Gen X and different people there, you know, there's a lot going on in life, but having respect for your time is, is so important. And when you make a meeting, you make sure you show up on time or five minutes early. That's kind of like the first two, you know, if you make it past that, then they may give you a small project or a small thing to do, but there's a series of them and they get harder and harder to jump through until you reach a plateau where you can, uh, we call it the promised land in in Tom's book. And I, we have this thing called the sales promised land. And, you know, that's where you don't have any more hoops. Your hoops are, when can I get it done? And, you know, cost isn't even a factor anymore. You know, there's other factors, your partner with them. So, you know, that that's the way I look at it, but you have to start at the beginning and it, and it really starts with your profile. If you're trying to get trusted prior to getting a job or doing something, you got to follow those steps. The ones I just outlined, you know, the, the primarily your online profile has to be spotless. And one way to do that, at, it, well, if somebody says, hey, well, how do I do that? One way is to find a friend or someone close to the level of someone you're looking for um, out there. And you have them look at your profile and try to find dirt on you. And I find that to be fun and interesting. And sometimes it's good or bad because they may say, hey, look, I found this on you. I didn't know you did that or whatever it might be. But it's a quick way to solve that problem. And then you have to go through the process of making sure that's all cleaned up. So that's that's it in a nutshell. No, I, I think you're right it's that it all starts with your profile because all of us are looking and every day we're inundated on LinkedIn with people selling us stuff all the time. Right. And I have to say that uh, there's a lot of folks I get things from that I just don't trust because it seems to me that uh, I'll see the same picture like five different <laughs> five different names. Yeah. And I'll yeah. see very little information. I'll see very little uh, connections. And so I have a list of now criteria that I'm looking for to do business with somebody, yep. to even trust them. You write communicating online takes some of the emotion out of a negotiation. What do you mean? And, and is that a good thing? Well, it's a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, if you are um, being sold to, or if you're trying, let's put this, if you're trying to get something from somebody or get any type of negotiation in your favor from like a problem or whatever it might be, it's a good thing because you're able to leave that mystique out there. Um, and, and a lot of it's in the way you say things, you know, online. But, um, you know, most times, nine out of 10 times, uh, somebody on the other end of a negotiation that's in customer service is thinking you are not happy. They're not going to be thinking you're happy in this thing. And if you add a little time in there between your conversations, that sometimes creates enough suspense for to have them go, hey, is he really going to, you know, do whatever? He's not going to, he's not going to be happy if I offer this. Maybe I better offer something else. A bad negotiator will offer something else, you know, before the person gets back to you. Um, so that from that standpoint, it's, it's not good for the person on the other end. 
Now, as a salesperson, you can use it to your advantage. Um, one way is by using emojis. And I know that sounds really weird, but I'm telling you right now, two sentences could mean completely different things by adding an emoji to it. You know, if a one client sends you something that says, hey, when can I get this? And it's in bold letters with, you know, a apostrophe at the end of it um, or an exclamation point. That's one thing, but if they said, "Wait, can I send? When can I get this?" and another one with a smiley face emoji, two totally different meanings. Um, so, if, if someone's you know cognizant of that when they're doing the negotiating, you know, that can make a whole different um, emotion that you tie to it by doing those things. You mentioned a negotiating strategy of taking your time responding when a salesperson, which is what you've been just talking about. What, why is this a good strategy and how long can you actually wait? Because this sounds like online dating. <laughs> In a way it is. You're, you're kind of, it's like a dance really. Um, so the good news about that when you're dealing with somebody online is when you take a little time, it gives you the ability to think, you know, most people when they're doing a live communication, you know, with someone, you, you have to think in your feet, but, and you might say something wrong. It, it, the, the, a lot of salespeople are like that where they you know, they they haven't done a lot of it, so things can be said wrong. But if you take your time, you can actually research things with people. So if you make an initial co communication, you could talk to them. What I like to do is when I'm doing, and sometimes when I go and meet a new prospect online, I'll go to their social media right away. And I'll look at some of the things that they, they do, what they're comfortable with, what they're interested in. And it, it just helps me to be, uh, be able to relate to the customer better. Um, so, you know, I look at that as a, as a good factor. Um, in the book, you write about how people embellish their online profile. How can you discern what's true and what isn't true? Yeah, I've got a pretty good test for that. Similar to what you were doing. Um, one is grammar. I mean, you can usually tell someone by the, if they have broken grammar if they're either from another country or whatever it might be. Um, and, and that's like the first flag that goes up. The next one is how many followers they have. If they have one or two followers yet they're an MBA and whatever they do, you know, that could be an issue. Um, third, if their photo looks too good, you know, sometimes that's an issue. Or if there's multiple photos, like you say, you've seen them on different vendors, um, all that, you know, starts to bring up the spider senses and you're like, hmm. <clears throat> but the final one that will always knock people out is how about if we get on a Zoom meeting and we talk for 10 minutes, you know, and make sure that you have your camera on. That usually weeds out 99% of the scammers <laughs> or people that aren't who they say they are. Um, and that's just the way it works. Yeah, I think I find that out in all levels of interacting with people, whether yeah. it's uh, business or social. As soon as you say that, then they're like, uh, well, I, you know, I can't do it, but I'd love to do business with you. And, you know, but and then I just say, well, then we, I don't think we can be doing any business together and move yeah. on. How do you get people to overcome their fear of failure, which you talk about in the book? Uh, which I've seen with aspiring entrepreneurs who can't handle the roller coaster ride. In fact, I recently worked with really super smart guy, and he just could not handle the roller coaster ride 
of entrepreneurship. I mean, yeah. if, when when the when it's going up, he's like, "Hi!" But as soon as something changed for us, like the investor decided not to invest or they put it off, it was like somebody had massacred his whole family. <laughs> so this is fear of failure. Is that what this one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, there's there's a lot of things you can do for that. But the first thing I want to preface this with is that maybe not everybody is cut out for, you know, that type of a world, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, as a startup entrepreneur, you got to have a tough skin. You just do. And that's why most of them fail because it's those two things on your shoulder. One is telling you no, the other one's saying, yes, you know, what if I don't, what if I do, you know, there's so many things that come into play. Um, for me, what I found that works is, um, you know, repetition, um, you know, whatever you're doing, you know, do like if it's a presentation you're afraid to make, you know, practice it prior to, um, you know, there, there, there are so many different factors that, that can come into play for that. Um, and just trying it, you know, take, take small steps, you know, take steps that are, you know, baby steps, you know, maybe you don't want to start a gigantic corporation and go in debt a couple hundred thousand or a million dollars. Maybe you just start a home business and and try it out and see how it works. Um, you know, with me, I've did a little real estate. I have a little real estate. I I like real estate too. I mean, it's one of those things, rental properties are really nice. You know, we have a couple, you know, small house that we rent out and it's a it's an easy way to get into that world. You know, so there's, I would just say small steps, small baby steps, work your way into it if you're really that nervous about it and just see if you like it. So it's not going to, you know, bankrupt you. <laughs> so along those, along those lines, how do you overcome rejection and intimidation? I mean, that's a big thing for people. That's one of the biggest fears, yeah. business and socially is rejection and intimidation. So what are your recommendations for how to overcome those things? Yeah, well, again, it's all perception. It really is. You know, people can look. I have a, in the Tom Hopkins documentary, we've got Russell Gray in there. He's, you know, real estate mogul, you know, and all by Tom Hopkins training. And he talks about how rejection is not rejection. Rejection is simply a way that you have to you have to have rejection to get to the next level in sales, you know, you, you can't have success in sales unless you have rejection. And usually there's a lot more of the rejection than the, than the sales end of it. Um, but you know, so it's, it's your perception of it. If you look at it that way, then, you know, you need more re rejection to be able to become successful at it. Um, intimidation, you know, it's the same thing with the perception. Let's say, um, you know, you're dealing with somebody, um, online and, uh, you know, they are, you're afraid that, uh, you know, they're going to, reach through the phone and, you know, slap you around or whatever it might be, you know, the, the odds are a customer service person is going to even know any better. They just want to get through the day. It's their nine to five. They want to get through and they just want to make this go away so they can get on to the next guy. There's no vendettas involved, <laughs> you know? So if you think of it that way, that really lowers the fear level and they're, they're just like us, you know, they all have the same thing at any level. Um. A question from the audience. What's a blind spot you had that made a big difference in your sales career? Uh, and he he and he writes loves Tom Hopkins and sales. 
Uh, a blind spot that was what? Uh, what? What is the blind spot you had that made a big difference in your sales career? A blind spot I had that made a yeah, big... Yeah, I guess a blind spot you had that and you overcame it. Oh, oh, that I overcame. Well, you know, in sales for me, it, it was numbers, you know, doing the numbers, you know. Um, it took me some time to get comfortable with that. And back in the day, it was it was the phone. You know, you got to pick the phone up. And, uh, you know, you have to make 100 calls a day. You know, that that's what the, the goal was. But in, in the beginning, that phone weighs 100 pounds. That hook, it could, you know, that end receiver end, you're just, uh So it took time to understand that and get comfortable with that. Um, you know, another blind spot was learning the closes, learning what needed to be done. And in, in my situation, um, I had a Walkman and I worked on a night shift in a grocery store and I just put the headphones on and I all night long, I'd be stocking shelves, listening to his closes. So I literally actually wore these cassettes out. So that gets in there, you know, it gets in. So when somebody asks a question, you know what the answer is in almost any situation, so, you know, getting that due diligence, you know, really, really took some time. It took, it took, took some time to understand. And, uh, but that's how I overcame it. Here's the second question related to this, um, from the audience. And what's the blind spot you had in writing the book with Tom Hopkins that created the aha moment? Oh, okay. Um, uh, I think the blind spot there was having I don't know what you want to call it, guts. I don't even know what you call it. <laughs> Lack of fear to hit the send button. That was the that was the big one. I mean, I became flush and nervous and probably almost passed out the first time I did it. And I I and I saw that button there, and it was like I was gonna blow the world up if I hit that button send. <laughs> I already made everything, you know. What I had so many what ifs. You know, is he going to laugh at me for how dare I want to write a book with, you know, such a inspirational guy? And um, but he wasn't. He wasn't like that. Uh, but that, that I would say that button was the hardest part out of the whole thing. Um, my, my view on this is I always look at things and say, what's the downside? That's all yeah. I do. Yeah, I, that's my sole criteria uh, for everything is what's the downside? In the book, you mentioned people's fear of success, um, which sounds ridiculous, but it's true. Why do people fear success and how should they handle it? Yeah, in reality, fear of success is fear of the unknown. And and and, and on top of that, fear of responsibility, you know, uh, on what could be, what they could have. Um, and, you know, the way to overcome it is to know it first. You know, because most people that have that fear of success don't understand that that's what that fear is. They might think it's something else. But once they realize that they know it's, hey, this is just a fear of success, you know, I can overcome that. I can handle that. I can get used to driving in my Lamborghini, you know, or what people might think of me, you know, that, I mean, that's my take on it. And why not try? You know, we're only here between the dashes of the two numbers on the gravestone. You know, why not try? What What do you have to lose? And and if you do lose something, no one's going to remember it a hundred years from now. Not yeah. that big of a deal. <laughs> yeah, I'm a hundred percent with you. I live my whole life like that. Many times, especially in employment negotiations, people ask, 
What do they want? And they surprisingly stumble, which you talked about this earlier here. Uh, how do you prepare for that question and not go too low or too high with your ask? Essentially, how do you make the right case for whatever it is? Um, I don't have a lot of experience from a standpoint of the person being hired, but I've always looked at it as... Well, even some, if, even when the client, right? Like you're trying right. to get a c- customer. And yeah. how often, especially if you're in consulting, you know, the consultant will always ask, so what, what's your budget for it? And the person never wants to answer that question because yes, they're afraid right. if they say, oh, my budget's 10,000. Oh, shit, we could do it for $5,000. 10,000, <laughs> yes, it's the exact number. Okay, so, so the I got the answer for that. So the yeah. answer that works for me is I give a range and I give several ranges if you have to give a number, um, you know, to get to find out, to understand that. So, um, you know, let's say for a video production project, they may say, you know, well, you know, what's it cost to make a video? All right. Well, that could be 500 bucks. It could be $500,000, you know, depending on what you want. So you kind of narrow it down and you say, okay, you know, we have these packages that could range from 500 to a thousand. And we have some packages that are a thousand to 2000 and some are two to 5,000. Is something in there sound like it might fit what you're looking for? You know, and then the next person who talks is going to own that negotiation. So that that seems to be a pretty solid way to handle that particular thing. Um, and was that a Tom Hopkins idea or was that something you've come to on your own? That one I came to on my own. I, he might have came up with it. I haven't seen it in his books yet, but the range does work. And, you know, I at the end, I throw in a little tie down if we need to, you know, would one of those work for you? You know, a little something that gives them an, a yes answer, you know, because whatever budget it is, if they say no, then they're obviously not your client that you want to work with anyway. Why is it a mistake to make an offer in an email, as you allude to in the book? Yeah, I'm try- I was trying to uh, wrap my head around how that fell into the context. Um, that was if I was making an offer is to a customer or I'm yeah. trying to think. Yes. I'm trying to think how that works. Uh, so, yeah. So, yeah. You, okay. I now remember what this was. So, what you want to do if, if this was if you were a uh, customer service person and you're trying to resolve an issue with someone that something went wrong. So, the reason you don't want to make an offer right away is because your offer for the company to this person might be way more than what they really want. Um, one of Roger Dawson's books, I, he's another mentor of mine. He's the negotiating master back in his day. He said at one point he worked for a carpet, was it a, car, a toaster company, like appliances. One of the toasters um, started a customer's house on fire and ruined their floor. It ruined everything. And instead of saying, we're going to replace everything in your whole house, he said, well, what would you like out of this? And the guy said, well, I really just want a new toaster and maybe a little rug for my front thing, you know? So he goes, I can wash everything else up and I'll be fine. So it's really, it's a win-win, you know, that you save money for the the um, company. And at the same time, you made a happy customer, but you didn't have to give away the farm. So that's why, you know, making that initial, you got to find out what they want first, for the most part. Well, Southwest Airlines is going to be doing a lot of that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. 
And I, I think about they're airlines. Get, I don't know yeah. why. <laughs> yeah, that's going to yeah. be an ugly situation for people who lost their entire holiday um, break. As I've read from friends on Facebook who yeah. picked Southwest Airlines and had their entire holiday season ruined oh. um, by yeah. this. So that's going to be an interesting uh, case study <laughs> on how they go and handle this and keep and win back their reputation and trust with their clients, right? So well, if you were advising Southwest, what would you tell them? What was that? If you were advising Southwest, what would you tell them about how to, because their brand is taking an enormous hit. I mean, they used yeah. to be one of the most trusted airlines. Now they're probably least trusted airline. Yeah, I, I think the first thing I would do with Southwest is I would get everybody on a call like this and just say, you know, we need to go over customer service 101 right now and make sure negotiations are are handled in a level that puts the customer on asking them what they want versus offering something. You know, start there, hear what they want, and then negotiate backwards and set a set a, a bar, you know, on your end that you, you're going to stay within. Um, but ultimately what that customer wants is they want to have, um, they want their not, they can't have their vacation back, you know, initially, but they could have something else that they may want that could solve a problem. So it's finding what that is. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to be the CEO of that company. You write before tackling a major issue, you should write out and make a video. Please explain the value of this and and how should it be organized? Also, what are mistakes people make when doing this uh, that they should avoid? Yeah, so um, in that situation, one of the the main things, this is when you're like negotiating with someone. I'll I'll give you an example. We had a lawn crew come out that was doing our lawn and they're very big. They're a huge lawn crew and and they did a terrible job and they killed much of my grass. And um, unfortunately, the people I were dealing with at, that the level there, not interested in helping whatsoever. They just said, this is the policy. This is how it works. We're sorry, but that's what the way this, as a matter of fact, there was no, no, sorry. It was just, this is the way it works here. So I actually did a couple of techniques, tried to get to the next level with, through some of the things I talked about in, in the book. And um, it was falling on deaf ears. And I was realizing that this is a situation where it's company-wide. So at that point, I just wanted to get my yard back where it needed to be. I did wasn't planning on using them ever again, but that I wanted to do that. So what I did, and this is usually a last resort, I went out in my front yard, I took pictures of everything. I went to their Facebook page and I posted them on their Facebook page. And I told the story of exactly what happened. I didn't embellish. I said, this is what I feel happened. And um, I'm, I'm not happy with it. Probably within 20 minutes. And this is a national group. Surprisingly, their site was open. I'd say within 20 minutes, I got a call from someone in their IT department saying, hey, you know what? We're really sorry about what happened. This got to the VP. He got back to me. Um, We're going to send a regional manager out to your house. We're flying him in to (laughs) seed your your lawn again. And I'll be darned if I didn't have... Probably within two days, uh, they flew somebody in to do that. And um, the, the funny thing was, he was just as dry as the rest of the guys. He was just, 
No, it was just company wide all the way up. So um, that does happen, but at least I got what I needed done. I had my yard receded and then we moved on to a different lawn company to do that. But that does happen too. So Facebook, to, to get on that point, you, Facebook and some of these social medias, you'd be surprised how many big companies don't monitor these things. And when they do monitor them, it's after the fact that something's done. So I use that as a last alternative because normally it's it's kind of like a dagger to them by doing that. Yeah, you're burning the bridge. Right. You know, it and it usually turns out better after that, but it, it's a situation that you'll you will get a callback. And even if it is monitored and you can't put it up there, even when it goes up there, someone sees it and they'll get back to you because it, it is a problem, you know. That's a, it's a shame when you almost have to threaten people to get what you want. I mean, that happened to me with a brother printer that yeah. there was a bad sensor. And you and when you put the ink in, it wasn't picking it up. So they yeah. sent me three of them. And each one, I said, listen, you have a bad batch here. And the guy said, obviously, you don't know how to put that in. I said, I teach at the Wharton School of Business. I have a master's degree. I've written a bunch of books. I said, I can assure you I can do this. Well, he said, sorry, we're not sending any more of them. So I wrote to the head of um, the media and I said, I read a national comm and this is what my comm is going to look like. Literally, less than two minutes later, I got a call back. No need to put that out there. Yeah. And we're going to get you a much better printer. And we're flying it overnight. And they gave me a much better printer. But I still wrote the comm, but I did write how, how they took care of it. Right. Uh, at the same time. So but I, I explained everything that happened and was a case study and really bad customer service. Uh, initially, it was good because they sent me their printer right away. But bad when the guy said, hey, obviously, you don't know how to put uh, the printer cartridge in. Yeah. And when it actually turned out to be five bad printers in total. Oh, man. Yeah, so, I can't say I haven't heard that. <laughs> So you spoke a little bit about social media throughout here um, before, and you wrote that the great value uh, that YouTube provides. And uh, can you tell us about how you use YouTube and what companies and individuals use it well to build their brand and drive sales? Because you have a whole section in this in the book. Yeah, so YouTube is fantastic because um, you can you can literally do the entire sales process through videos. You know, I, I mean, from prospecting to pre-qualifying to building the value to literally closing the sale can all be done almost always through B2B. I, I would say 90% of the sales that we make here, customers come to us first and say, hey, you know what? I watched all your videos. You know, let's talk about the details, but I'm I'm pretty well set. You know, wh where do we go from here? You know, so it's being able to handle all those objections within there that are that are really great. Um, you know, a, a company that comes to mind that does a really good job is SureTech Corporation, the Manco Tape. Uh, they're local around here. Uh, big duct tape, the duck tape. I don't know if you ever seen it, the duck with the then the tape. So yeah. they they do all their well at the time when I was working doing some work with them they do all their um, uh, research, all their customer research online now through videos. They have no need to use a customer research team anymore. Everything's done with coupons and emails go out and then they look at the videos and they have a really cool contest. Uh, what what can you make out of duct tape? You know, 
Um, and people send in their videos. It, it creates that interaction. Um, it's just a really cool thing. And it, it builds their brand on a much larger scale because some of these people come up with the craziest things they make out of duct tape from gowns to literally floats. Matter of fact, they even have a parade in our town. Everything's made out of duct tape in the parade. It's crazy, you know, so that kind of thing, I think you can really build on through YouTube. Um, and, you know, it gets the link juice of Google because they own it, you know, with the proper hashtags. Um, another thing that's pretty unique with YouTube, they created a thing called handles now, and um, it's still fairly new and you can get some of the good handles, but it, it helps to um, build the SEO. And it's basically just uh, at whatever it is. I think we have at podcast editing you know so if anybody pulls that up you you get higher up on the ranking so um that's some things that we see with that well, what's the best way since we're all business people on, on this uh listening here what's the best way to use linkedin and what are mistakes people making with their linkedin profile that's yeah. not really allowed allowing them to leverage it uh to get more sales or to attract uh, customers and the right people to work with that type of thing. Yeah. So LinkedIn is the holy grail of <laughs> sales and prospecting in our current world we live in. Um, you can do anything from prospecting to reaching out to people, closing sales, developing groups. You can really drill down with their paid services into um, specific people you want to reach out to. Um I would say 90% of what we do goes through LinkedIn with our, with our marketing right now. Uh, the rest is like word of mouth for the most part, but it's just, it's reputable, which is nice. Um, mistakes people do when, when trying to market through LinkedIn, um, they don't have their profile together properly. I think they try to use fictitious, fictitious people to, you know, like fake accounts to acquire leads and things like that, which are never good. And this year, LinkedIn's really, really cracking down on um, their algorithms for finding automated messages. Um, a lot of automated messages are not done. Well, first of all, they don't like you doing them, but secondly, they're uh, done poorly. I can't tell you how many times I would get an automated message from LinkedIn and someone would say, hey, would you be interested in this? I would type back saying, yes, I'm interested. And not five seconds later, hey, great to hear from you. Would you be interested in this? <laughs> you know, it's, it's just a, it's a robot, you know, and you, it's just hard to, I, I was really getting upset about that for a while. I was like, come on, this has got to stop. Lo and behold, LinkedIn came out with a thing now that this first of the year, they're going to be kicking a lot of people off that have automated messaging. So for any of those guys out, that's out there doing it, it's going to be a little tricky moving forward. I was really surprised about that. I didn't know that that existed until this past year because yeah. I would uh, agree to connect with somebody. And then all of a sudden I would get this instant email um, back and it's, yeah. and it's, it didn't seem authentic or genuine. So I ignored it. Yeah. And you know, or it's it, long like paragraphs yeah, or right. they've written like <laughs> war and peace. Yeah. You know, all your, our messaging that works best is, is what's worked for me. And it's, it's in the fill, fill your funnel book I wrote with Tom, but it's, it's, it talks about how to develop a short message that's going to get results. All our messages are one to two lines, super simple. Um, these are done through in mails in mails, a 
process that you with the paid service you could actually reach out to almost anybody but you get very specific to that to that group whoever you're going after um and you have one two lines and you have a video check out the video on this you know i think it could be helpful for your company it could you know something that's interesting for them that's compelling that will make them want to to move forward and then a call to action you could put your calendar link in there if you'd like to talk more click on the link or feel free to reach out to me anytime. Done. Um, what's the profile of the type of people that make good customer service professionals and what type of training should they receive that makes them come off as sincere and empathetic? So sometimes you can't train that in a person. <laughs> uh, you can, but it's the way I look at it is it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Um, and and, and you know, you can train it. You can definitely train it. But some people, it's like nails on a chalkboard. And I, I'm, you've seen it. We've all seen it. They're saying the right things, but they really don't want to be there saying those things. So what makes a really good customer service person is someone that truly has empathy in their heart. And I mean, they truly care for other people. And, and that's sales too. I mean, you know, both same way. I mean, you, you have to care for the other person that you're dealing with. You got to love people. You have to love people and want to help them. Um, so, I mean, that I think is more important than anything. I'm not the best salesman in the world, but I'll tell you right now, with, with in our building, with all the people here, everybody treats the customer like royalty. And we've made mistakes. We make, Lord knows I've made my ton of mistakes, but once that customer's on your side, they'll find a way to help you get past the problem that you have. And it's all because you, you, you're not self-serving. So, I mean, that would be my my answer. Training, there's a lot of training out there. Uh, Shep Hikins, really good. He's actually in the Tom Hopkins documentary. Um, uh, he's uh, has programs out there, tapes, I, tapes anymore. It's all digital. Um, you know, I would start getting programs on this from some of the people that are out there that that do it and start listening and there's tons of podcasts on that too that that i think could help and that's all free so there's currently a significant downsizing going on as we're reading every day in the wall street journal and other business publications especially in the technology community social media is probably the main way to apply and be screened for a job what should employers look for that would tell them beyond the descriptions of the person's a potential fit? And what should job seekers put uh, to differentiate themselves to get interviewed? Because you see on LinkedIn, actually, they'll even say to you if you're applying for something, oh, you fit five of these categories. But you think, hey, this job is the ideal or you're looking for somebody to fit this, but you could end up overlooking people. So what what's your advice on this? So I would suggest look past the trees past the forest in other words so don't get caught up with the this down here think about what they want what they really want and go right to the person that can give that to you um video is probably super important i mean so for at least from what i'm seeing so few people will send me a video on who they are I would love to, I, when I do an interview, I would love to have somebody say, hey, my name's John Smith. I'd love to be in your facility. You know, here are some of the reasons I would be here and a good fit. I look forward to talking to you. Um, 
Grant Cardone does that. He 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 talks about that. He's uh he really doesn't look at people unless they send them a video on who they are and why it should be a good fit to meet with them. The advantage of that is the customer, you, well, first of all, you can create a perfect presentation out of that and you don't have to stumble. You can do it over and over again until you get it right. You can have it professionally edited where you have an intro and an ending or whatever to really build your brand. The, the second thing is the customer can watch it anytime they want. They don't necessarily have to be in an interview with you. They could be sitting at home watching TV. They can look at it when, when they're comfortable and they can give the most attention to it. So, um, you know, those are some things I would suggest right off the bat when, you know, trying to get in front of the right people and then offer something that nobody else is going to offer. You know, do the research on the person that you're going to be hired by or the company and find out some unique ways that you can be different from everybody else and put that in your video. Yeah, I think we always hear that from people saying, God, you didn't do any research on my company, whether it's selling the company or um, or or selling yourself to the company. We even talked about that before, how yeah. people write to me about having their bosses on my show and saying, oh, my God, your show is the greatest and blah, blah, blah. And then I go, oh, what's the book they wrote? Oh, he's never written a book. <laughs> that, the whole show yeah. is about interviewing business book authors. Yeah. And right away, they've killed any opportunity I would even consider them. You wrote that you expect upgrades uh, with every transaction. How does a business owner make that happen with vendors and suppliers without paying more or very little? Um, well, there's some simple techniques. I have a ton of these in the book, but a couple of them, I'll give you one that's, and this could work for business owners. This could work for, you want to go buy a stereo set, get new tires for your car. One of the simplest tech, the simplest technique is called a flinch technique. And basically what it is, is somebody gives you a price. All you do is go. And you just wait. The next person that talks is going to have that negotiation in their court. So I have gotten, I don't know, tires 50% off by just doing that one little thing, it gets real uncomfortable in the pause because first of all, the the other side, it kind of throws them off guard and they're thinking, oh boy, this guy's going to be difficult to work with. But I've had guys just turn around and say, oh, you know what? How about if you give 50% off on the tires? I'm like, okay, I think that could work, you know, <laughs> whatever it might be. So, and, and that's happened time and time again, you know, depending on what it is. Um, there's always a little thing you can, you can get out of, out of this. Um, Try to think of some of the other ones. Oh, uh, oh, yeah. Another one would be something as simple as saying, you know, is that the best you can do? And just there's that pause. You leave that pause in there and wait for the other person to talk. It's very much like closing a sale. Once you say you're closed, you just pause. Next person to talk usually owns the whatever it is. But on the other side, you said earlier, if you were telling the person on the other side, don't offer anything, ask them what they would like. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So if you have two good negotiators, it gets a little tricky. <laughs> um, I find most of them that are like working retail, wherever they might be, they usually cave right away. And, you know, and I even had one where I used my wife, she was uh, pregnant, and she knew exactly what I was doing. And we were buying a stereo system. And it was probably about 8,000 bucks at the time. Um, <clears throat> go into the store, she was perfect, because she was like six months pregnant. And she was a little bit, you know, irritated, you know, understandably in the situation. 
and I would use yours, what was called a higher authority close. Car dealers use this all the time. <clears throat> and I walked in and I said, you know, this is great, but I deal with my wife on this, you know, and gave me the price. I'm like, I got to go back to her. And she was, you know, over here stomping around and I go back to her and I'd say it and she knew what I was doing. You know, we do this together and she'd be like, oh, I can't, no way. You know, so I come back and I'd say, oh, she's really difficult to deal with today. You know, is there yeah. a way we can, you know, work on this and, you know, better price. And so after about, I don't know, a half a gallon of sweating <laughs> on his part, you know, we finally got this to the point where he did it once and they came back with even a better price with his boss and we ended up getting it. But it was about an hour's worth of negotiating. I think you saved about $3,500. So, and today with cars, there is no negotiation because you go to a car dealer and they go, okay, let's look up the best price in the region and we'll give you that. And yeah. my father, if he were alive today, would mm -hmm. hate it because he loved the negotiation, like stomping <laughs> out, going back and forth and, right. and trying to play the guy and saying he got a, a great deal. I don't think I've ever met anybody who hasn't gone to a car dealer and said, oh, I got a terrible deal from them. Everybody always likes to brag what the great deal that they got. Yeah. In the book, you talk about the skills it takes to be a good negotiator and what makes people bad negotiators. Please tell us what they both look like and how you developed your own negotiating skills. Yeah, so a good negotiator is um, not, not self-serving. You know, they don't come across as self-serving. They come across as empathetic um, and they have to know their techniques. You know, there are, there are some certain techniques you need to know and you have to be prepared to use them. Um, you also need to know what you want. Um, I can't tell you how many times people come up to me and said, you know, I tried to negotiate this and I'm like, well, did you know what you want in the end? And they're like, no, I don't. Well, then you're going to take whatever they're going to give you. <laughs> you're already backpedaling if you don't know what you want out of the negotiation. No matter how off the wall it is, you want to know what your bottom line is before you go into the negotiation. And that goes back to what we talked about before. You know, most people don't. And so that's why the customer service person says, hey, well, what do you want? Um, and if this person comes, oh, well, you know, I only want a new toaster. It's okay. But if you come in and say, you know, I'd like my entire living room remodeled and I'd like to have that done by next Tuesday because we're having a dinner party on Thursday, you know, um, then you set the bar up here. And now they have to come back and find a way to, to meet you at that level. I have to say that um, I had a new dishwasher put in and they dropped it off, but they didn't put it in mm -hmm. and they were supposed to. And I said to them, hey, I have a whole dinner party. I didn't, but I have these people and it's sitting in the middle of my living room. Yeah. Uh, you know, what are you going to do about it? Oh, my gosh. You know, I'm sorry. But the earliest we can schedule is next Monday. And I said, you know, that's just not acceptable next Monday. <laughs> and so essentially they almost gave me the dishwasher for free by the time they gave me all of these store credits. Yep. And then they actually sent food. Like what, what was the place you're going to, you know, thinking of getting this food and they ordered the food and had it sent over. So I had food like for five days. <laughs> and you'll always and that, use that. Customer. And the person came. You'll always yeah. use them, you know, and I think customer uh, companies are finding out that, that's more important than the quick save, you know, the big ones, the ones that want to stay around, understand they'd rather give a toaster away than make an angry customer, you know, or whatever it might be. 
so just quickly, and I have two, uh, one more question after this, but the, uh, someone from the audience wrote, speaking of negotiating, have you read the book, Never Split the Difference? Have you read that book? I might have, but I who who's the author for that? Uh, if you can type that in, um, the person who uh, asked that question, Paul. And we can always look it up. Uh, but in any case, let me ask you one final question while we I get that. What's what's the difference between being bold and rude? I think people of all ages deal with this, but mostly it's a problem with young up and coming stars. How do you teach someone the difference between being bold and rude? Yeah, so being <clears throat> bold is not self-serving. It is it is being slightly aggressive for the good of your customer to give them something that they know will be good for them, but they don't understand it is. And to guide them into doing that uh, through questions or whatever it might be. Uh, being ar- arrogant was the other one? Uh, so, yeah, uh, being bold and rude. Rude, rude. <clears throat> so rude is just what it is. It's being arrogant and self-serving and people see right through that and uh, condescending, you know, if you're condescending in any way, you may not think you're condescending, but other people do. You have to think about what those other people are thinking. And that's, that's critical. Uh, One last thing on that is, um, you know, I was interviewing Tom Hopkins probably about three months ago, six months ago, maybe six months ago. And he said, you know, um, Sig Ziglar gave me one saying I live by in my life. And it's, if you give enough people what they want in their life, you'll get everything you want in your life. And he, they both have lived by that rule their whole lives, and they both were very successful because of it. So um, it's it's a good good motto to stand behind, a creed, a good creed to stay behind. Dan, I want to say thank you so much for being our last guest for 2022. I want to thank everybody My for pleasure. listening today. And we're actually booked through the first week of October of next year. So we have authors every single Friday through October of next year. So I thank you for participating today. I hope you have a healthy and happy new year. I wish all of you to have a healthy and happy new year as well and be safe. We'll see you all next Friday. Great. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at danportick.com for any reason. I will put that out to everybody and let them know. Awesome. Thanks so much. Take care and have a good New Year's. You as well. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.